Hey all, this is Money Mediator and I'm Tyler Olson. Nice to have you with us today. Uh, I'm joined today uh, by uh, two guests, Dr. Melgen, Vivian Melgen, and uh, Brock Buckles. Uh, Dr. Melgen is an OBGYN and uh, Brock is a, uh, he's actually a colleague of mine in the financial and insurance industry. Today, the three of us, we're going to be talking about disability insurance decisions for physicians, uh, both things that students, residents, fellows, and attending should be thinking about. Um, thank you both for, uh, for taking the time to talk today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having us, Tyler. I appreciate it. It's great to be here, man. Yeah. Happy to um, be here. I remember how difficult this was to navigate. Do you, um, yeah, when, when we were talking about this, Vivian, like it sounded like it was something that you've had life experience with and it's like so hard to get like accurate information, don't you think? So difficult. And even though we have advanced degrees and are quite intelligent people in medicine, it's really hard to read language that you're not used to reading. <laughs> yeah. Those contracts, Brock, I don't know, man. Yeah. They're really long. They, they can be, man, for sure. And, and that's one of the biggest things. And I, I think it's all about the way that it's presented to people and the way that people kind of help people understand it and kind of understand where are you guys coming from? Like how much knowledge do you actually have on this? You know, some um, programs in college and people in residency have a better idea about it because they had professors who brought somebody in to talk about it. Uh, but, you know, a, a lot of, um, unfortunately, a lot of people that are insurance professionals or maybe insurance unprofessionals uh, will go out there and see these residents come out and they're like, oh, I know they need disability income. And it's like, oh, here's what you need. And they try to tell people kind of what it is that they need rather than trying to understand what it is that that particular doctor does and um, help them understand kind of the different moving parts within a disability contract. And so, uh, yeah, I think it's an industry problem that needs to change. And I, uh, I definitely want to be spearheading the effort to try to help people understand, you know, what their options are more so than, hey, this is what you need. Sign here, press hard, third copy is yours, keep the pen type salesman crap. So, um, yeah, definitely. Cool. Well, we, we want to address some specific things uh, and get some questions. <clears throat> and um, it'll be nice to discuss this together. Um, first of all, like where should, where should someone buy disability insurance? There's so many different options. Um, Brock, could you share like your thoughts on like generally like where people can go to get disability insurance? Yeah, definitely. So the, the first thing that I would recommend is find a trusted um, insurance broker. And the reason that I say that is because insurance brokers jobs really are to, to find out and look at your situation and understand what your unique situation looks like and then take that to market. So once they do that, they can look at different companies, Mass Mutual, Principal, Mutual of Omaha, Emeritus. I mean, there's a lot of companies out there that offer it, but the disadvantage if you're talking to a captive agent um, or someone that represents one company is their job is to basically come to you and try to sell you on why their company is the best option, whether or not you actually fit into the mold of what makes sense for their disability product. And so I always recommend, you know, you can even Google insurance brokers in my area or insurance brokers that work with medical professionals or um, anything like that. I'm always happy to help if you guys have any questions. You're listening to this podcast, but find a trusted insurance broker that works with several carriers that can take your situation to market, understand, you know, your different um, kind of requirements. If you take any medications, have any health issues or anything like that, so that they can really look at what your situation is and find something that fits perfectly to you. 
So a question for you, Brock. So is there like a clearinghouse or like a database where you can search to see like how many broker, how many, like what brokers work with whatever companies or do you have to just kind of shoot in the dark and look around the region? Yeah. So there are going to be different brokers that work with different companies. Um, you can obviously do research. I will say that any well-known uh, brokers probably going to work with uh, the vast majority of companies that are out there that aren't captive. So there are companies like Northwestern Mutual where a broker can't work with them. If, if you wanted to get a Northwestern Mutual policy, you have to work with somebody at Northwestern Mutual. And they're going to be more incentivized to sell you a Northwestern Mutual product mm -hmm. because that's where the retirement and compensation and all of that comes from, which is kind of a different conversation. Um, but yeah, it, it, usually on, on their websites, they'll have the, the carriers that they work with. And so you'll kind of be able to see that. But one thing to know when you are looking for a disability carrier, I would not work with any carriers that are not a rated. So what I mean by that, when I say that is there's a few rating companies, Standard and Poor's, AM Best, um, Fitch, and they all rate insurance companies basically based on their financial stability and how likely they are to pay claims and how much surplus they have in their ability to pay claims. So never work with a carrier that's not A rated because they will oftentimes look for opportunities and loopholes not to pay claims, which is why they don't have that A rating in the first place. So very, very important to find an A rated carrier. Now, another thing that I think is an, like another way to find how I find my person was through the GME office at my residency. So some people I've understood, like some brokers work very closely with the graduate medical education offices and are trusted by that community. And that's like an easy way for people who are starting intern year to find someone, yep. though I don't know how reliable it is across the board. Um, I yeah. felt like I found someone who I trusted through that process. Definitely. Yeah. And that goes back to trusting your gut, right? Kind of using your intuition. Does this feel salesy? Do they feel like I'm, do I feel like I'm being educated or are they just trying mm -hmm. to get me to kind of sign on the dotted line here? And it feels like a rush process. Um, I, I will say anytime that you're having a conversation with anybody, if it feels like there's more education than implementation, that's always a good thing, right? So you have questions, what should I be looking for here? Right. And then just the knowledge base that they have behind it. Um, because there will be things inevitably that you will have learned in school. Like people will typically tell you, look for an own occupation definition or, and if, and if you're asking these people, these questions, they're not able to answer it for you. Um, then, you know, that that's kind of a warning sign, but you absolutely have to find somebody that you, you trust and like, and that you feel is explaining things to you and educating you, um, to the extent that that is appropriate. Doesn't that also ring true for when you're looking for a doctor? <laughs> It absolutely does. Yeah. Are you in and out or is it great bedside manner? It's the, it's the exact same thing. So exactly. for, for a lack of a better way to say it, find an insurance um, brokerage or broker that, that has good bedside manner. If you're in the, if you're in the medical world. Exactly. Yeah. Well, this is uh yeah. And there's, there's lots to this really appreciate how, uh, how candid you're being with us on this Brock so far. And um I think like even aside from knowing where to go, then like one of the main things that any, anytime someone asks me to review their disability insurance policy, I'm looking for own occupation, the, the phrase own occupation. And Definitely. I think that a lot of people have heard what that means. What does it mean though? Can you, could you teach us what own occupation disability insurance means? Absolutely. So when you're looking for own occupation, that means it's specific to your own occupation, right? So we all know the term MD, 
We all know, but we all know that there's a lot of different MDs, right? So your OBGYN is not going to be doing your knee surgery and vice versa. Um, Absolutely and, not. Right. Um, and, and so what you're looking for when it comes to an own occupation, there's two basic definitions. Um, there's also something called medical own which is basically an own just different companies will call it medical own occupation. Um, the own occupation is specific to your job duties and the work that you do on a daily basis. And if you cannot perform those, it would pay out. So if, if um, you're an OBGYN and you can no longer deliver babies, right? For whatever reason, it's too physic physically strenuous. You can't do it anymore. And you lose 15% time um, or the ability to go into work uh, income or time, then you can file for a claim and you would actually get paid um, based on what your salary was and based on what you made as an OBGYN, right? Versus in any occupation definition, which is a looser definition, there's a lot more wiggle room within that um, definition. And it would basically say, okay, if I can't be an OB OBGYN anymore, but I could go practice family medicine and see people in more of, a, of an office setting. It's less of a physical procedure. I don't have to kind of um, be able to move around as much. Then you wouldn't get paid for being an OBGYN. You could get paid for just that any occupation or the difference between what you make as an OBGYN um, and a family practice um, a physician. So the OBGYN, if you were to have to go file a claim, you're going to get the, the uh, income based on what that OBGYN is earning. So you don't want to make what a family physician is making if you're an OBGYN. So you, it, it's, it's more specificity around the contract and it's less wiggle room for the insurance company to be able to come back to you and say, okay, but we think that you can do this over here. So we're just going to kind of pay you the difference. So if you, if you can't do exactly what your job is as an OBGYN, the benefit's going to pay out fully. So if the, the contract is $10,000 a month, you can't do it anymore. You're going to qualify and get that $10,000 a month. Whereas if it was in any occupation and you could go make a little bit less, they would maybe pay the difference, but they're not going to pay the full disability um, benefit amount. So let's give people an example then. So let's say I'm an OBGYN and, you know, knock on wood, this doesn't happen, but I injure my hand to a point where I probably can't use surgical instruments, but speculum's fine. I can do office practice. Right. Um, how would that exactly work out for someone like me who does, you know, let's say 50, 50 surgical or inpatient and office practice currently. Yep, absolutely. So in that situation, you would be able to file a claim under your own occupation, OBGYN contract, and it would pay out the full benefit, right? So if it was $10,000 a month, it was $20,000 a month, um, it would pay out that full benefit. And the great part about that is, is you can still go practice family medicine and make that income. And that's not going to um, interfere with the disability benefits that you're having from that disability contract as well, right? So that's really, really important when you're specialized. And you talk about, like, even if you're talking about cardiac or neurosurgeons, right? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, that, that could be the difference between making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year and some make over a million dollars a year. Um, so that's a, that's a big difference when you're talking about an $800,000 swing, Right. And so they need that they, they need that disability um, to, to kick in and to be able to pay out. Uh, and so it's, it's a huge it's a huge thing to have own occupation because any occupation really takes the ball out of your court, puts it in the insurance company's court. And I always like the ball to be in the court uh, of the, the person that has the um, disability income insurance for sure. 
what across the board have you seen in terms of like the difference of cost between any occupation and own occupation? Because I feel like some people who are, you know, afraid of paying a lot of money a month for disability insurance might kind of fall into the trap of I'll just take any just in case because it's cheaper. Yeah. So typically you're going to see um, any occupation be cheaper. Some companies offer um, own occupation rider, no charge. So that has to do a lot more with looking at the specific company that you're working with. Some will charge you for the own occupation rider, whereas some it's actually built into the definition. So it all depends on what company you decide to go with. But in general, um, any occupation is definitely going to be cheaper. It varies by company, but I don't recommend that anyone ever get any occupation, to be honest with you. I just, I don't like the ability that the insurance company has to come back and say, okay, but you're doing this. So it's like, I don't want to, I'm not trying to bargain with you. Like, I don't want okay. this to be a situation. I signed up for this disability income in, in, in case, you know, worst case scenario, I was disabled. So I I'm not trying to negotiate here. I can't do what I am supposed to be able to do. This is what I signed up for. So this is what I expect to be paid. So I, I like it to be black and white, not not gray and in between the lines when it comes to uh, filing a claim. 100%. You're already navigating a terrible time. Never mind having to negotiate with insurance companies. Right. Exactly. And, and realistically, statistically, for a lot of people that are listening, there's a one in four chance that there will actually be a long-term disability that will occur to someone throughout their working life. So 25%, right? Like that's not a number to kind of play around with. We're not talking about 2%. We're talking about 25. Now, does that mean they're going to be disabled throughout their career? Absolutely not. The average disability is about two and a half years uh, for men, three years for women. So um, it doesn't mean they're going to be disabled forever. But with that being said, it can have a substantial impact on a financial plan. And it's one of the biggest things that um, really inhibits people from, from having their money grow um, over time is, is a disability. If you don't have that policy, it can be uh, a really, really tricky thing for, for people as well as their financial planners to kind of have to navigate. On that note, I have another question for you. I hope I'm not stealing that from Tyler. <laughs> um, so when you're a resident, you know, you only qualify for insurance for the income that you're currently making, which is usually like fifty to $60,000 a year. Right. And when you graduate, you have a great bolus in your income that first year and there on after. Right. Um, what about... And, you know, what should you look for when you're a resident in terms of coverage? And what is it that helps you transition from being a resident to an attending? That's a great question. Yeah. Uh, so so I always recommend that people get um, a policy during residency if they can. Right. Like if they're not too strapped for cash, everybody has different amount of student loans and stuff that they are kind of uh, paying back and paying for. Some people are lucky enough to where they don't have any, which is great. Um, but one of the things that I always recommend is getting a policy for what you're making as a resident. And then I always recommend putting what's called an FIO or future increase option rider on the policy, especially for doctors. And what that allows them to do is we can see what they're making now that 50 to 60 grand. And then we can ask them, okay, what do you expect that to go up to once you're out of residency, you see kind of that, uh, income go up substantially. And then they could say, okay, I think I'm going to go from making 50, 60,000 to between 250 and 320, right? And so we say, okay, then why don't we give you the option to get another 10, 15, $20,000 a month down the road with a future increase option rider so that they don't have to go back through the underwriting process to be able to get that additional benefit. Now, that is a rider that you do have to pay for, but people like physicians who are expecting their income to go up um, substantially, 
after they get out of residency, it just makes sense because the other alternative or option would be if something were to happen during residency, they decided not to get the future increase option rider and something happened with their health. So people, you know, 75% of, of disability claims are actually not due to injury. They're due to illness. So cancer, Parkinson's, anything like that, um, you probably are not going to be able to get any more disability coverage. So it locks in that ability to get the coverage. And then you also have the ability to just basically sign on the dotted line saying, Hey, here's my most recent pay stub. You can see it's a lot more than it has been. What else, how much more can I qualify for? And they'd say, well, you can qualify for another 5,000 or 10,000. Okay. Sign here. And then you would, that would be your new disability policy. So I always encourage people once again, just like the owner occupation writer, put the ball in your court, put that future increase option on it especially if you're in the medical community, um, because that just gives you the ability. It's very, very hassle-free. You can sign it and, you, and you're good to go once you get out of residency. You don't have to go through the whole underwriting process again. Yeah. Would you keep paying for that once you're a new grad and a new attending, knowing that you still might have significant increases in your income in the next decade or so? Or would you let that go and just kind of ride it where it is and just save more money? You know, I always try to educate people on the on on both. I always think it's a good idea because realistically, I, I don't think that anybody has a great time paying for insurance, right? But with that being said, the only thing that could be more inconvenient than paying for insurance is not being able to get it down the road um, and or having to pay a substantial increase in price uh, because your health's not as good or you waited or something like that. So the only thing when you take advantage of those future increase options that's going to be looked at is your age. Your health is completely negated. You're going to get the same exact health rating as the day that you sign the policy, which as you know, most people in their 20s or early 30s where, when, when they get out of um, residency are probably going to be in some of the best health of their life versus when they're in their Fingers 40s crossed. or 50s or 60s, right? <laughs> Fingers crossed. Um, hope. <laughs> but, but I like that option for people because there's nobody that can say, oh, sorry, you had this medical scare. Or, oh, sorry, you got diagnosed with this. And now we can't increase the contract. So now you're making $360,000 a year and we can only give you four or $5,000 a month of benefit. So I, I think that's one of the biggest things that people in residency should really be looking at and considering when they're working with somebody. Yeah, I've seen like just the, the numbers and projections of what a retirement plan looks like with the delay in making more than sixty thousand dollars a year, uh, with the with you know residency and fellowship, if they're like, you can certainly find a way to survive. Like obviously, there's a lot of people in this country that live on less than four or five thousand dollars a month. Um, but if you're in the situation where you have a choice and you're making a decision. I tend to recommend getting as much coverage as you can as soon as you can get it because that income replacement, and it's not just about like cost of living replacement, but it's also like savings replacement because disability insurance at best runs out at 70. And yep. for our, you know, social security is something and all that. But yeah. Mine stopped at 67, I think. So like after that yeah. though, what, what are you going to do? Like if you were fully disabled and then the policy runs up to that point, you want to have, Ideally, if you can create more ideal situations, I yep. say get as much coverage as you can, even more than you need so that you can continue to save for retirement, save for your kid's college if you've got kids or whatever else is going on. I, I view disability insurance as trying to move on financially without skipping a beat. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. that, 
a lot of people can't do, you know, can't make this amount of money. So it's not to say that, that you couldn't find a way to survive, but if you're in this position and you've invested as much time as you and your colleagues have, yep. I'm just mm-hmm. like, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta max it. You gotta it. protect it. You gotta protect it ferociously. You've worked yep. so hard for it. That's the part that, you know, I think people forget sometimes when they're looking at the numbers in the moment, they're like, that's a big expense per month, but you've worked so hard and they can all completely go away so quickly. And I've seen stories in my own residency, someone who had cancer and was out for a very prolonged period of time unexpectedly. I've heard stories of people who came before me who, you know, um, you know, had an injury while moving to residency, you know, broken glasses in the garbage can. They went to compress down the garbage and just like destroyed their hand, their dominant hand that they're going to be operating with now. So there's just like silly accidents that can happen that are completely unexpected and illnesses that can occur even when you're young and it could completely change your life trajectory. And, you know, in medicine, we see that firsthand when we take care of patients um, and we can become patients. I think we often forget that. And we think that we're just the ones who are on the other side of the stethoscope taking care of people and don't look out for ourselves as much. Yeah. And I think, I think another important thing to know is that, you know, physicians, especially when you first get out of medical school and you're in residency for a lot of people that's it's a very fragile position to be in right because you just got out you've put like everything on the line you're like this is what i'm doing medical school is not cheap right a lot of people have families a lot of people that i've worked with and know have taken out extra loans to be able to pay for their family's lifestyle so they've got loans they've got extra loans that they took out they've got three kids at home they have a wife that's staying home because that's cheaper or a husband that's staying home or a spouse is staying home because that's cheaper than paying for child care so you've got all that stuff going on um and it's just a very kind of delicate place to be so if you don't have that disability coverage and something was to happen well now all of a sudden you're kind of like up the creek without a paddle because you, you know you just don't have kind of that um that backup so it, mm-hmm. it can be a, a very delicate position to be in. And, and the other thing, going back to what you said, is I always recommend, you know, get as much disability income insurance as you can and get it to age 65, 67. Uh, because I never want, my biggest nightmare as someone who works in insurance is someone gets a disability income policy and there was a budgetary constraint. And I educated them on the risk of only having a five or a 10 year benefit. But they said, okay, I want to do it anyway. And then they got diagnosed with a debilitating disease, Parkinson's, MS, something like that. And then down the road, I have to have a conversation with them. Hey, next year, your benefit runs out. Like that wakes me up at night, having to have a oh, conversation. That's awful. Right. That's absolutely and so terrible to think about. And unfortunately it happens. Right. And, and so I always recommend if you have the ability, um, or if you can just cut back in other areas, get it for as much as you can. And once again, put the ball back into your court so that you don't have to worry about something like that worst case scenario happening. Yeah. I, one thing that comes to mind when you talk about these things and about things that could be disabling is mental health. Um, and I know that this is going to sound a little um, controversial, um, but that is something that providers of healthcare in general, across the board, physicians, nurses, whatever, we, we just don't do it well. We don't take care of ourselves well. Yeah. And um, mental health is something that is stigmatized in the medical community. Um, and, you know, it's starting to get better. I think people are encouraging doctors and nurses and everyone to get, you know, therapy or to see someone for depression meds as needed. Um, but, 
you can be penalized for that when you're getting insurance. And that's really, really hard um, to, to, to stomach when you're a healthcare provider and you're in need and yeah. you maybe haven't squared away all these this paperwork. Could you talk more about like the riders and things that come up when they scan through your health records and what kind of information these companies have access to in terms of your psychiatric and your medical health history? Definitely. So yeah, that's one of the things that is the most challenging about what I do is having to have those conversations with people and uh, people being penalized because they did go out to seek help, right? Because uh, obviously anybody knows in our daily lives as people like we see things, we think about things, that's just a part of it. And some of the best ways to kind of get through that is by talking to somebody. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's kind of this double-edged sword where you go to talk to somebody, but then an underwriter, unfortunately, can see, okay, hmm, I can see, um, I can see here that they went and talked to a psychiatrist. And unfortunately, um, they can actually get into those records a lot of times and see what you've talked to them about. And I will say that uh, you typically a psychiatrist, if you talk to a psychiatrist or a therapist, they will reach out to you first and be like, hey, can I can I share this information with them? They can't just get it without your you saying that they can. Right. Um, but when they do look at those, unfortunately, um, it can ding some people. And, and especially in a, in a disability policy, they can put what's called exclusions. So they could put a mental health exclusion on there. So if it's something that is related to depression or anxiety, they can say if it's a depression or anxiety related claim, we're not going to pay for it. Anything that happens mm -hmm. to their hand or foot, um, anything like that, we're more than happy to pay for. Um, but there are things, unfortunately, called exclusions on disability policies to where if 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 that was the reason that you had to file a claim or be away from work, um, then they, they unfortunately would not pay the claim. And I think that's something that needs to be worked on and uh, humanized a bit, right? Because there's so many things that they look at and they underwriters are typically very like binary analytical people that are kind of just like looking at it and being like, mm, okay, here's based on the chart. Somebody that has depression and anxiety is this likely to do this or this likely to take this much time off. Um, and, and I wish that it would be looked at a little bit more like, well, they're going to seek treatment. That's great. Like they're getting it off their chest. They're actually being able to have these conversations 100 agree so, with that. so that they're less likely to file a claim. Exactly. Right? And, and, and I, yeah, I wish it was looked at more like that for sure. It is such a double-edged sword. And I mean, getting into a personal story, um, like I've told you guys before this, my sister passed away unexpectedly a few weeks before I started residency. And my program director was super kind and got me into therapy at the beginning because I knew I was in for a rocky road yeah. and a you know, a crazy ride. And I did therapy and it was just about grief. And I took an antidepressant for a few months and years later, when trying to get that rider off and get life insurance, even later, it has been a fight and it, everything is more expensive because of that. Yep. Um, and it's just so sad to know that like by taking care of myself during a time of vulnerability, I was penalized and it breaks my heart to know that other people, you know, may have to face the same thing for looking out for themselves and for preventive things like that. Yeah. And I'm sorry to hear about your sister, but I think it is important that you, you went and did that. Right. Um, of course. And, and again, this is where working with a trusted insurance broker, or a trusted person that's really going to go to bat for you helps as well. Um, because as much as I'm sitting here saying that, that underwriters are like analytical binary, all this stuff, they're also people. So our job as, as insurance brokers, insurance professionals is to talk to the client and say, okay, here's what came up. 
right? In the medical records, it says that you saw a therapist or a psychiatrist in 2017, 2018, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. If you're comfortable, would you mind talking to me more about that so that I can go back to the underwriter on your behalf and say like, this was grief, right? This is a normal thing that people experience. This is not something that's debilitating. This is not something that has ever held this person up from being able to go to work. And a lot of times uh, we can get that exclusion removed or we can say, okay, well, we're going to put the exclusion on there for a year, but we'll have a reconsideration period in a year to where if there's not been any more um, appointments or there's been no time away from work or there hasn't been a claim filed, we can get that taken off. And so yeah. again, that's why it's really important. Um, but I do think that it's, it's very important. It's very unfortunate that there is that stigma around mental health. Again, it's just kind of a numbers game for them, but that's very, very challenging. And we see a lot of frustration from people when we're working with them, because it, frankly, it is a very frustrating thing to have to deal with. You're like, I, I, I thought I was doing something good for myself to prevent any, you know, any negative things from happening or, or clearing my headspace, which I feel like is a good thing, but unfortunately it's not always looked like that. Underwriters don't always look at it that way. So the question that came to my mind when I was applying and this came up was how much can they really see? Like, do they just see diagnosis codes and like encounters, or do they actually get to read the content of your medical records when you sign that waiver, giving them access so that they can do your paperwork? Yeah, um, it can be pretty intrusive just being completely transparent. Uh, I mean, I, I've, I've had people, it's been everything from, uh, we could see that you, you know, had, we were diagnosed with bipolar disorder this year and had suicidal thoughts at this time during this month, during this thing. So um, yeah, it, it can, it, they, they basically have um, complete access. Now, I will say that a lot of people, I think a lot of psychiatrists and a lot of a lot of therapists make a diligent effort to be a little bit more vague in their notation and what they, what they write down when they're having conversations for these people. Um, but they, they do have very, very, um, they have strong access to the medical records. They can basically, once you sign off on it, you're basically giving them permission to, to scan over it. And, um, I think that's why, you know, a lot of people and a lot of psychiatrists and a lot of therapists are like, they immediately will reach out to their client. And it's it, a lot of them are really good about it. Be like, I have no idea who you're talking about. That's not even a client of mine, like the confidentiality, but once you sign off on it and you say they can have access to it, um, they can, they can get pretty, um, pretty nitty gritty about the stuff that they're, they're looking at. Yeah, you're not getting a policy without signing that paper, are you? So probably it's not. kind of like your hands are tied, like you are with a lot of other things in your physician contracts. Unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Almost like it pushes you toward cash-based um, therapy, if anything, so that you could stay off of that. Um, stay off something the record. considering, honestly, just to make your life easier. Um, I wish I had known I would have totally paid cash and not have to deal with the nightmare later. Yep. And a lot of them, you know, it's the, it's what comes up in the MIB. It's the medical, medical information bureau, right? So they'll be able to look up your name and that chart, see everybody that you've seen. I mean, I've talked to people. They're like, yeah, I like sprained my ankle. And I was taking, like, they put, they put me on Tylenol for like a week. And it's like, that holds up the process for two weeks. So Honestly. yeah. And, and then, and then some people are more like, yeah, it's not a big deal. Like it's not a big deal. Right. So it also depends on like what company you're working with and then what underwriter at that company you're working with. So it, it unfortunately, um, there's a lot of factors that go into it. It's, um, it's honestly funny. It sounds like these insurance companies have better access to records than we do when we get transferred patients. Right. <laughs> <They're> not an <in> epic. <laughs> 
Yeah. And, and the way they're looking at it is we're on the line for X amount of money. What's the likelihood of, a, of this person filing a claim? Because obviously the, the way that the insurance company makes money is by not paying claims, right? Doing a, doing a good job in the underwriting process, hopefully mitigating the amount of claims that they pay so that their profit margins are higher. Yeah. Business. Yep. I know uh, a surgical resident who uh, was had a really bad bout of uh, COVID this past yep. year. Um, to the point that disability insurance discussions have come into play and her program was helping her by providing just like off the books care. Yep. So she's not in, like, it's not in the medical record. Yep. Like how, I mean, is there, is there any risk to doing that rock? So um, it, it depends, right? Like if, if nobody ever knew about it, I suppose it's not, a, I guess it's not really a risk. Um, with that being said is if, if you ever slipped up, right? So number one, if you have to call in, a lot of times there's a tele, tele interview. So you have to call in have a conversation and they'll be like, have you seen a doctor recently? What does that look like? And so the issue that you get into there is if they, for some reason, found out that you saw a doctor and you didn't tell them about it, and they have that on a recorded line, and then sometime, somehow you obtain the coverage, but you didn't disclose that, then all of a sudden it's a matter of, well, did you lie while you were applying for the insurance, right? So then it becomes a matter of, well, are we willing to pay that claim because this person did this? Um, so my goodness. There, yeah, I mean, it, it really is. And I mean, it's, it's crazy because... It, 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 it can go as deep as you're on a, you're on a medical interview, right? Somebody was at a college party. They were drinking with their friends. They were 21 years old or whatever. And, um, they, they graduate, go to medical school, get out, go to residency. And they'll be like, okay, so have you by chance, um, do you use tobacco? And if someone says, well, I guess I did smoke one cigarette at a party like three years ago, they will rate you as a tobacco smoker, right? So now your premium will double just because you relinquished. So, I always educate people before we get into the underwriting process, like it would be completely illegal for me to coach them um, on, on the answers to say and what they should tell um, the underwriters or the telehealth interview person. But I will tell them, this is how it's rated. If you say you smoked a cigarette in the last three years, for any reason at all, they're probably going to rate you as a smoker. If you don't regularly use tobacco, um, just think about the way that you're answering those questions and, and be honest with them, but they, they will, uh, ding you in different ways if they have the opportunity to. So, um, there is some risk obviously associated with getting care off the books. If they found out that that was something that you were doing and they asked you about it and you were dishonest about it. Um, with that being said, they have access to see the things that they can retrieve. Um, so that, that's the way I'll answer that question. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit tricky. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay on the tightrope there. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's the way that I would answer that question for sure. Um, Brock, how, I, you know, another, another subtopic of this is uh, the world of, of unisex rates. Yeah. Um, in terms of uh, medical records. Um, and like we were talking about both like people who are non-binary, trans, uh, female, male, like there's a lot of, there's a lot of different decisions that might have to be made for people who are, they're trying to apply. And especially like, like females, uh, female will, the rate is higher, right? Yep. So are there some things that, that, uh, that physicians 
can apply with regard to uh, being able to get the right rate, getting as low and affordable rate as possible? Yes, absolutely. Um, so when it comes to the non-binary trans, anything like that, what they're really going to do is basically, typically you could say prefer not to say on the application, right? But as they go through your medical records, they're, the, typically what I've seen is they're going to look at the sex that you were born as. Um, when we get into the unisex rates, typically where that's applicable is if you say you were a family office, it was you and a few other attending physicians, and um, you guys wanted to apply basically as a group. There can be a group discount for sometimes two or more, sometimes three or more. And because you're applying with two or three more, two or more or three or more, you can get unisex rates, which is really, really favorable um, to females because unfortunately, um, or anybody that's non-binary trans, because unfortunately uh, for disability insurance, it costs more for females and for um, life insurance, it costs more for males. And that just kind of goes to, uh, we were kind of having this conversation before we started, but traditionally uh, women will go to the doctor more and get things checked out if they feel like something's wrong. Whereas men are less likely to go to the doctor, kind of try to tough it out. I don't know if we're scared or something to go to the doctor and find out what's wrong with us or what that is. Um, and then uh, for that reason, because we get less things checked out because we don't always know what's going on with our blood work, we tend to pass away sooner as well. Um, so, but there are unisex rates, uh, available for people. Um, if it's a, if it's kind of applying in a group coverage, uh, measure, but in my experience, um, typically they're going to look at just from a, a an anatomy perspective, the sex that you were born as, um, when they're, when they're doing the ratings. And then along with that, and we kind of had that conversation as well, as I know, um, statistically, a lot of people who are non-binary or trans, again, that goes back to, you know, when you're going through that, I'm sure that there's some um, different counseling, therapy, different things like that available. So that can also be something that's kind of thrown into the considerations as well. I'm sure that doesn't always happen, but that is, that is something that does come up for people. And I'm always very, very transparent about that um, and, and talking to people about that as well. Yeah. Another example of a penalty for taking care of yourself and trying to live your best life. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's brutal. And, you know, unfortunately it is, you know, it's, it, it puts the insurance companies, I think in a bit of a hard place and from a consumer side, it's really difficult, but they're making money. Like I said, based on profit margins and looking at like statistically and from an actuarial standpoint, how likely people are to file claims. And so that's the way they look at it. And, and I think I would love if they would change the approach to that. Um, but that's more of an in, insurance industry thing where I yeah. think, um, it, fortunately, because there's a lot less to do with health, the investment industry and the financial planning industry is a lot more progressive. And I, and I really love the way that that's been able to go in helping people and, and being encouraging. But um, because what we do has a lot more to do with what's going on in your actual body, I think that's, that's kind of their logic behind it. Uh, yeah, as a consumer, I can say it is definitely a hard pill to swallow knowing that. I mean, as a female young surgeon working in women's health, knowing that we often get paid less than men and then we're getting yep. charged more for disability insurance is really rough. Um, I was able to get a unisex rate, thankfully, um, and I'm very happy with that. But Good. it was hard finding that because there were very limited options for unisex rates. Do you know what the like most common companies are or like the most commonly used companies are for unisex rates? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that Emeritus has some unisex rates. Principal has um, unisex rates. Um, I use Mass Mutual. 
Mass Mutual has unisex rates. What was your experience like? If you don't mind sharing, because I'd love to hear from the other side, what was kind of your conversations when you were going through that process to get that unisex rate? Oh, I think there was just a lot of frustration on my end. And I had a very, very patient broker who was very kind about it um, and helped me find the unisex rates. I do remember being frustrated because there were very limited options for companies and it sounded like they were dwindling over time and that was going to go quote out of fashion Um, in like 2018 ish when um, I was looking at trying to get that rider off. Um, but it sounds like it's become more popular again and people must've fought that, you know, fought that from going away. Yeah. I, I think whether it, you know, I think companies are having to become more progressive, right? Cause that seems to be that the way, um, in some ways, I, I, I guess not, sometimes it's not, um, but in a lot of ways, and I think socially and, and from a consumer standpoint, they're being to their companies are being, um, expected to do that. And so they are trying to adapt with kind of the way that the world is going. And just based on situations like during COVID, I know that there a lot of companies came out with a lot more options for accelerated underwriting without having to take a paramedical exam just out of necessity. So we see that becoming a lot more commonplace um, for people trying to obtain things like disability and life insurance as well. Um, But I think people are trying to, companies are trying to accommodate, but Uh, Again, the insurance industry a lot of times just moves really, really slowly when it comes to that. So it can be a huge pain point from the consumer. And people call me and they're like, why is this happening? And I'm like, I I promise you, I'm doing my very best to try to get you the best rate. Um, But but it can be definitely very frustrating when you feel like you're being penalized, you know, based on the way that you were born or based on the way that you are. um, Repeatedly. Repeatedly. And so I always encourage people to do this. The sooner that you can get insurance, the better. So there's a concept called guaranteed insurability. And when I talk about that, I'm talking about if you can try to get, if people will be like, oh, I'll just wait until I'm out of residence or I'll just wait until, you know, I've been in the field for a couple of years, right? Um, and, but if you can get that while you're in residency and you get that rate locked in, um, then you have that at that rate, even if you were to get the future increase option and get more coverage down the road. And I really, really like that because if like a lot, oftentimes I'll talk to people and they're in their early twenties and I'll talk to financial advisors and they're like, how much life insurance do they need? They don't really have a family. They don't really have a need for it. Right. I'm like I hear you. Right. But you could get a million dollars of coverage for less than $50 a month for a 30 year term, and they can't have that coverage taken away from them. So I I like to approach the conversation from what kind of lifestyle do you wanna live? Do you intend on getting married? Do you wanna have kids someday? And if so, let's lock in that coverage right now so that nobody can ever take it away from you. And then regardless of what your health looks like in the future or anything that you're diagnosed with, you have that coverage at that rate. Once again, the ball's in your court. So the sooner you can act when it comes to insurance and the healthier that you are, um, the better off it's going to be. Because I talk to people all the time who are, are kicking themselves because they didn't get it sooner or they waited. And already twice this year, we've had people who decided to hold off on insurance um, last year, just wanted to wait for a little bit. Both were diagnosed with cancer and now have to wait five years before they can get any coverage at all. So um, just getting the coverage and, and guaranteeing your insurability is a huge conversation when I talk to people about insurance. Mm. Well, very helpful information, uh, Brock. Um, something else that uh, we wanted to dive into with you was, um, well, they're, they're kind of, they're somewhat related. Well, tax implications of the type of insurance you get and um, 
you know, whether the premiums are deductible or not, yep. as well as how to balance employer provided disability insurance with privately purchased, like how, so I guess those are two different topics, but they're somewhat related. What are yep. the, what are the tax consequences of disability insurance payouts? Yeah, great question. Um, so the tax implications basically are, we'll keep it simple. If your employer is paying for it. So typically as a physician, what I see a lot of times is people will have 50 or 60% group disability through their employer or the hospital that they work with. Right. Um, if your employer is paying for that disability income insurance for you, then that benefit when you receive it would be taxable. So you will have to take pay taxes on that 50, 60% you're getting, which usually takes it down to that 40, 45%. And so the conversation that I typically have with people is what would it be like if you had to live on 40, 45% of your income? Most, most physicians, residents, because um, their student loans and different things involved, they're like, yeah, that would make my life pretty uncomfortable. And so that's where supplemental disability comes in. And we would be paying the supplemental disability income um, premiums with after-tax dollars, meaning that when you're paying for that benefit to get it up to 70, 75, 80% of what your overall income would be, that in that part of your benefit, so the part you're paying for with your money, your after-tax dollars would be tax-free. So employer paid, taxable. If you're paying for it post-tax dollars, not taxable. So that would be tax-free. So that's uh, that's the way that we approach the conversation. Now there's a sub point here. Eric, go ahead, Vivian. I was going to say, and the other thing is you said that there's like a percentage of what your income that it could be. They also sometimes have a max. So like I know in my contract, it's like 60% of your income up to Absolutely. a max of this many thousand dollars per month, which exactly. is not always 60% of your income. It can often be less. That's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. So you have to know exactly what your specific contract looks like. Because you don't want to kind of get pigeonholed by the fact that you're like, oh, 60%. Okay. And then you do the quick math in your calculator, right? And that says, oh, I'd get $10,000 a month. And then you read the, the subtext or the smaller fine print. It's like up to $6,000 a month. So very, very important to know. Um, and very, very important to let the broker that you're working with know. I always encourage people just to upload like kind of your benefits package let us look at it so that that way we can work with um, your more pr the, the private disability policy that you're purchasing to get you as much as, as we possibly can. And the insurance companies, they want to know what other coverage is available to you, right? They do. Yeah, because that will, that will dictate how much they're willing or uh, will allow you to obtain from them. Because if everybody was going around to every different company and purchasing $10,000, uh, that that could lead to some insurance fraud. So they do not not that the good people listening would ever do that, but that could lead to to some problems down the road for sure. If you do that accidentally, like if you don't inform the insurance company of what is available to you through your employer, would that create claims issues? It definitely could. Yeah, yeah, it definitely could. And and the thing that I always tell people about a claims process, I never want to overcomplicate a claims process, right? It's already complicated. You're already going to have to do have a doctor basically write a note saying like they're disabled. Here's why. Um, and so the less moving parts that we have, let alone something like, okay, you had two other coverages that you never told us about. Um, prove to us that you're disabled now, right? It's like, why are you actually disabled? I never want anybody from a claims department to have any more questions than like, 
okay, just give us the doctor information. How long have they been disabled? How long has the elimination period been? Right. And then once we get to that 90 days, I want that to start paying out because that's why people purchased it. That's why they're paying for it. And that's the way it should be. Is it always 90 days for most companies? Yeah. No, so you actually have the choice when you're designing um, the, the contract with the insurance broker to choose. I typically, um, the people that I work with typically elect 90 days because I say the sooner that you can get the benefit paying out, um, the better. You can also opt for 180 days. You could opt for a year. You could opt for two years. With that being said, I, I would never recommend that because by then you're probably depleting so much money um, that it's not going to feel very good. And the cost savings between 90 and 100 days realistically is not going to be that dramatic. Um, the things that will significantly impact a disability income premium, or if you take the benefit periods to things like from age 67 or 65 down to a 10-year or a five-year benefit, right? You'd be paying substantially less. With that being said, though, now you're kind of gambling with um, how long you're going to be disabled, which I would never recommend um, people do. Now, with that being said, sometimes people do go to apply and insurance companies will uh, regulate um, or determine how much they're willing to offer. So if there's somebody who is say a physician that has a lot of pre-existing conditions or scoliosis or different things going on, sometimes an insurance company will say, okay, we're willing to offer coverage. We'll even give them the $6,000 a month, but we're only willing to offer a five or a 10 year benefit here. So um, at that point, we would have to work with the physician. And typically I would still recommend doing it because it, once again, the average is two and a half, three years, but um, it's obviously not going to be um you're not, you're, it's not as good as getting a policy that's to age 65 or 67. Okay. So, yep. And, um, okay. Yeah. So one thing, one caveat too, about the tax implications of the, like the, the premiums for physicians that are like they own their own practice or they're, you know, they primarily are doing locums or they, are getting, you know, primarily just getting paid through 1099 income. Yep. Uh, they could deduct their premiums if they wanted to for the purpose of like reducing their taxable income, but then they would also then be substantially reducing the benefit amount if they ever sustained a disability. Is that right? That's correct. Yep. Yeah, they would be because they're already getting that tax break. So they're saying, okay, well, you can't have the tax break later on if you're going to write it off right now. So it, by, by writing it off, you are, you are going to incur, um, you're not going to get that tax-free break if you're deducting it as well. Does that make sense? Because you're not paying it with the post-tax dollars. So the only way that you're going to get, uh, you're going to get that tax-free income is if you're paying it with post-tax dollars. Okay. That is yep. really helpful to know. I did not know that. Yeah. So I, I always tell people, because that's a decision that people have to make. They're like, can we write this off? I'm like, well, technically you could, right? Um, but you have to kind of weigh the pros and cons of if you actually want to do that. Because if you're paying with post-tax dollars to kind of just keep it simple, then you're going to be able to receive that money down the road tax-free. I had to make that decision myself for my own policy because I have my own business. And I was speaking with my disability broker and he was running me through this exact same conversation. And I thought about it and I thought, you know, this premium sucks. I hate how expensive it is because it's yep. much cheaper. <laughs> yep. I was thinking I could deduct it, you know, and then the cost of it is effectively, you know, like two thirds or whatever about, uh, 
what the premium is once you get the tax back. But then yeah. I thought, well, why am I doing this? Like, can you imagine sustaining a disability and then all that benefit is taxable? And I'm like, I'm so, so not happy that I took that tax deduction. Like, this is a, it's, it's a cost and it's expensive, but you just got to bite the bullet. Yeah, you it's would like, definitely be kicking yourself if you did have to file a claim because you'd be like, oh, you know, like, why did I yeah. do it? So, yeah, it's you definitely got to weigh the pros and cons. Typically, I recommend people just for the sake of keeping it simple, do the do the post tax. And I think if, if someone does have to go on claim, obviously, they'd be really happy because that keeps it a lot more um, simplistic during claim time. And by the way, I want to make a note, like every time I have a conversation with someone about DI, I say to them. I hope that you never have to use this. Um, but if you do, you'll be really glad that you have it. So um, that for anybody out there that's listening, like I, I understand and we understand it's insurance. It's not the most fancy line of work. It's not fun to talk about. Um, it's, not, it's certainly not as fun as your investments growing or your financial plan and you buying a new house or whatever it is. But with that being said, it's one of those things that can really save you in the long run if something were to happen. Um, and so I, I always, I always preface that, like, they're like, how, how do you do this on a daily basis? And I'm like, yeah, it kind of sounds morbid, right? Like you're always talking to people about what happens if you pass away or get disabled. Um, but I, I like to kind of tell people, you know, think about the peace of mind aspect. Um, especially if like a lot of, a lot of spouses of people that are physicians stay at home. Um, and so, you know, if that's the case, they're kind of the sole breadwinner. So it's, it's really a necessity at that point, but I always make it very, very clear. I hope that you never have to use this, but I promise you, if you do, you're going to be really glad that you have it. If there's any population of clientele that would understand this concept of needing to prepare for something that can happen unexpectedly, it is definitely doctors. Yep. We see it every day. So yes, I, <laughs> I think people, I hope people understand that and can, can think you know, be forward thinking enough to protect themselves in this way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think it's huge. I mean, it's, it's, a it's, it's an interesting conversation because it's just, it's not fancy. People wouldn't want to do it, but you've spent so much time, effort, and energy becoming a physician. And I think it's one of the most well-respected things that you could possibly do. Um, my stepfather's actually a physician. So I've gotten to watch that my whole life. And he was talking to me about disability income insurance when I was a lot younger and before I was ever doing this. Um, but I know that he's super glad that he has it. He's never had to file a claim, but he would never get rid of it just because he knows it's there. He has it. And it's like that peace of mind that goes on. Not to mention a lot of people are like, okay, but what does it actually look like to my financial plan if I was to be disabled? And they think, okay, well, I have to dip into my emergency fund. I have to dip into my savings. A lot of people aren't thinking about the fact that your medical bills are also going up substantially in the event. So not only you know are you dipping into the money that you do have, but your costs on a monthly basis are typically going up quite a bit as well. Yeah. So I have a question for you, Brock, that's a little bit um, unrelated, but something that I was very um, surprised by and I think may have a, a bigger role in the conversation now that inflation has been crazy this year. Could you explain a cola rider for us, please? Yeah. And what we should look out for and what you should ask for. Yeah, absolutely. So cola rider stands for cost of living adjustment. Um, Inflation is a little bit crazy right now, but typically what we'll see that rider at is about 3%. And so um, what it does is once you are to go on benefit, so if you were to have to file a claim, your benefit would go up 
3% per year to keep up with the cost or to keep up with inflation. Um, as Tyler would know, or any financial planner, or as you would know, I'm sure as well, you know, the amount of money that you, if $4,000 a day is not the same as $4,000 in 10 years is not going to have the same buying power as $4,000 today. Right. Not even so, last year. <laughs> yeah. Even last year. That's exactly right. Um, yeah. Look at gas. Right. So uh, what the last thing that we would want is for someone to have to go on claim. And if say that they were disabled for 40, 50, 60 years, obviously that's not going to work if you're getting that same $4,000 and that's going to create a lot of issues down the road. So um, COLA rider is definitely important to have on a disability income policy. Um, we always put it on along with the ONOC and, and typically the future increase um, option. So that's, yeah, that's a rider and it's most simplistic form. It keeps up with inflation. Yeah, that's, uh, that's really important to have. Yep. Especially like I think about like a, like a 30 year old physician who is anticipating how, they, how they're going to protect themselves 20 years from now. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You I mean, you definitely want to have it. If I'm talking to someone like the, the riders that are like non-negotiable, um, is own occupation and COLA, right? Those are like the two staples now. And, and if I'm talking to a physician, future increase option is something that I always strongly encourage. Um, obviously it's up to them whether or not they want to pay that. I always, again, my job is to educate them on kind of what it looks like. Um, but COLA and own occupation are, are non-negotiable. I, I will almost not, I mean, I really will have a conversation with people. Like if you don't want to do own occupation, might want to find a different brokerage to go with because I don't really feel comfortable just giving you an any occupation definition because realistically, if I do, and then you have to go on claim, you're going to come back to me and be like, why would you ever let me do any occupation when own occupation was an option? Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm you can ask Tyler or anybody that follows me on Twitter. I'm very, I'm a stickler about own occupation for sure, but Cola is uh, definitely a crucial writer to have on a policy as well. You know, I forgot to ask this earlier. Own occupation. What's the difference between own occupation and the industry's medical occupation definition? It's a good question. Um, a lot of times, and it depends, again, depends on the carrier. Um, because you could, like, for instance, Northwestern Mutual has a medical own occupation, right? That isn't necessarily any stronger than principal's own occupation but they call it medical own occupation because their standard definition is modified own occupation, um, which makes you have to qualify for some different things to actually get the benefit. And so oftentimes um, medical own occupation is just kind of a term um, more so than it is anything else. Own occupation typically is going to cover the things that medical own occupation um, will cover. Oftentimes it's just kind of a marketing name for companies that don't include own occupation in the actual definition. So yeah, that's, that's something to important to note. You can find that all over uh, the internet as well. A lot of people think it's like this really special thing if it's called medical occupation, but within each different contract, it's actually different. And the things that you have to do um, are different as well. So the, what, what you have to, to qualify for. So 15% loss of time um, or income for some carriers, 20% loss of time or income for other carriers. And I don't know if you guys are going to ask this, but the other um, rider that I would always recommend that you make sure you have on your policy is called an extended partial um, disability rider. And what that allows you to do is get the benefit, even if you're not completely disabled. So without that rider being on a policy, a lot of times you'll have to actually be completely disabled in order to get the benefit, 
Whereas the extended partial allows you to have a lot, like with mass mutual, the definition is 15% loss of time or income. Um, so that's huge because you don't, it's not like you have to be bedridden or completely disabled to be able to get the benefit. And the vast majority of disabilities, it's not like somebody's completely laid up in bed and can't do anything. It's just that they can't fully do the, the activities that they rely on doing um, as even as much. So sometimes someone could still work three days a week, but it, it hurts their back too much to work five days a week. So that's, uh, that's a really good point. Yeah, that's something to um, note. Definitely make sure that you have that extended partial um, rider in your disability policy because um, you don't want someone to basically have to tell you that you have to be bedridden to receive a, a disability benefit. Well, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Uh, uh, one other thing I was thinking about was the, um, like you mentioned, like having a broke, like working with a broker that can work with several or a variety of companies. Yep. What, what are the, in your opinion, what are the best insurance companies that offer own occupation disability insurance? Yeah. So I think that Mass Mutual has an extremely strong definition. Um, they do a really, really good job. 15% uh, loss of time or income is a really, really generous definition, I think, because that's saying like, literally, if you lose 15% of your time or income, you can file a claim and get a payout which is um, better than the vast majority. Principal, I think, has a very, very good definition. I believe there's a 20% loss of time or income on their extended partial definition. Um, Emeritus has a really good one. A lot of people are big fans of Guardian. Um, and then you also have to realize that who you're working with and what they're incentivized to do. So those are the companies that we typically work with and that I see a lot of people have a lot of great mutual of Omaha has another policy. Um, there there's, there's a lot, there's a lot less options in the disability than there is the life insurance. Um, but I think it's also important. I want to make this point, understand who you're going to talk to, right? So if you're going to talk to somebody from a captive carrier, meaning that they must work at that company in order to facilitate those products, they're probably going to push you to try to buy that company. And you have to understand and weigh the pros and cons. If they're not providing you with more than one option and they're only putting one carrier on the table, I would be scratching my head and asking, why am I only being presented with one option here? Because when we talk to clients about their disability income and we talk to physicians about their disability income, there's always at least three different companies that we provide as options so that they can see the differences. They can see the benefit amounts. They can see the premiums. They can see the definition of disability, what they have to do to qualify for, what each rider costs. And so make sure that the person that you're talking to is not just showing you one carrier and trying to get you to sign up. I wanted to make sure that I, I crammed that point into the podcast at some point. Yeah, no, thanks. That's a good point. Um, I want an unbiased person. <laughs> you want an unbiased person. You want someone who doesn't care what company that you go with right? Like as long as it makes sense to you and it's a good A-rated carrier, you want someone who is just going to say, because that's the other thing to know is when it comes to underwriting, when it comes to um, what people are willing to look at, every company has different criteria that they're willing to accept when it comes to underwriting. So if, if somebody saw a psychiatrist, one underwriter, one company might look at that and be like, you know what, it's, it's not that big of a deal. Whereas another company might put a rating or an exclusion on it right? So, or scoliosis or type one diabetes or any other medical condition. And that really comes to work, comes down to working with a good insurance broker as well, because anybody who's good at what they do is going to call around before you get into the underwriting process and have a conversation with an underwriter and say, what, what are you going to do with this? What, I mean, what, what is your anticipation based on the fact that I'm telling you this, 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 and this, 
Um, and the more information that we can get from the insured or the person that we're talking to trying to obtain the coverage, the better. Um, because we could say, you know, what's your A1C levels? Are you on an insulin pump? How much do you typically take? When were you diagnosed with it? Is it under treatment? When was the last time that you had kind of a medical scare? And we can get kind of a um, pre-decision or, or kind of a baseline before we actually decide to move into underwriting. And a lot of times that alleviates a lot of the frustration that clients are going to have if they get into the underwriting process, go through it for two months, take a paramedical exam, and then get declined. Mm. Yeah, that reminds me when I was going through underwriting, <clears throat> because my practice is primarily virtual, yep. um, especially these last couple of years. And it's, it's expanding where it's more in person. But at first, when I was filling out the application, like, I work from home. And what that did is it was relegating my policy from, I think it was, it was supposed to be enhanced partial disability to basic. Yep. And my broker went back to them after he's like, I need to talk to you. And he wanted to know more, like more granularly about my business. And like, and I went out to see people in person because I guess there's some thing in the industry. Like if your office is at home, then you're not eligible for enhanced coverage. Yep. Um, wow. Yeah. 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 You have to talk uh, to, to them and a good, a good disability person will, um, again, not coach you on what to do, but make sure that they gather all the details to put together the best comprehensive, uh, policy for you, because there is a thing that you have to fill in saying, you know, okay, how much time do you spend in the office? How much time are you out actually visiting clients? How much time are you doing? you know, all of the different things to be able to, to, to qualify and, and get different aspects of a, of a disability policy. So it really does come down to, and listen, everybody has to get their start somewhere. I'm not here to rain on anybody's parade, but if someone's been in the industry for six months and they're out there just selling the one thing that they know how to sell, they're not going to know all of the moving parts that are necessarily going to be the best for the person that they're trying to get insured. So working with somebody that's very competent, knows all the moving parts and has knowledge of of a lot of different carriers and how those carriers differ is, uh, is crucial. Hmm. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. No different than the fact that you'd want your doctor to know a lot, a lot about, you know, you want someone that's experienced, you know, someone that wants all the different things they can diagnose things. They've been around for a while. Um, so it's, it's no different than any other profession or a financial planner that knows a lot about the different aspects of financial planning. So uh, you just want somebody that's experienced and knows, knows what they're talking about and knows how to really, um, look at your situation in the, in the unique way that it is and, and find something that fits into that situation. Yeah. I think that that brings out an, like a, an underdeveloped aspect of the insurance industry, because like I know in financial planning, there's more and more a culture of training like yep. para planners being trained by financial planners. Yep. And like in medicine, Vivian, correct me if I'm wrong, but like, like even interns that are starting this week, like I would trust them, but it's because they're within the framework of a training environment yes there is someone watching their every move and decision yep and guiding them along the way as they guide you but whereas in the insurance industry you could just have an agent who's oh. like <laughs> listen man i'm i did not have to pass the lsat to get my insurance license all right i'll just throw that out there right now <laughs> um it, it, the vast majority of training or, or or knowledge that you obtain is through being in it day in and day out Right. And, and frankly, um, and this is kind of similar to other places, the, the insurance test to get your life and health license 
really isn't that practical, the stuff that you do on a daily basis anyway. Um, it doesn't really prepare you. Like I know you know more about like the different state laws than you do anything else, which has nothing to do with helping someone understand what an own occupation policy is. Um, and frankly, you have all these companies, unfortunately, that recruit um, college students and they will train them and they'll get their life and health license. And the next thing you know, they're out there trying to sell disability insurance to people like six weeks later. So it's, it's, oh it, yeah, that's not what you want. Right. So do research on who you're working with. And there's some basic questions. I mean, just by listening to this podcast, um, I think based on the stuff that we've covered so far, you should be able to ask like, okay, tell me about your cola writer. Tell me about your extended partial. Um, tell me about the own occupation, the difference between any occupation. And if for whatever reason there's a, uh, then maybe you should go find somebody else to work with. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's that that would be the goal of, of people listening is just to make sure that you're equipped to ask these questions and know who you're working with and know about the experience. Um, but I would imagine, you know, anybody that that is a physician is going to have uh, enough competency to kind of get a feel for people and 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 what's going on. And if it's a, if it's a legitimate conversation, it feels authentic and that the person's knowledgeable or not. It sounds like you guys almost need to do CME the way doctors do. <laughs> yeah. I, th there needs, well, the, the bigger issue, which we won't get off on the tangent, but the bigger issue is people out there with their life and health license and no investment license, no 65, no CFP, anything like that, calling themselves financial advisors. But um, that that's a that's a that's a conversation for a different day. You know, they, <laughs> Let's move it back in. <laughs> you know, they just started in a state specific level. They just started requiring continuing ed for fiduciaries in Michigan. Yeah, like CFPs have on, have ongoing requirements. But like, if you're just registered as a fiduciary in most states, there is no continuing education. Yep. It's kind of that bothers me because it's like the fiduciary is like, well, that's the standard. It's like, well, but there's no continuing education. You're like, well. That's, yeah. That's, no, I, I think it's a good thing. I mean, doctors have to do it. You know, I, all, all the well-respected um, professions have to have some sort of continuing education because obviously the financial industry evolves, the, the medical industry evolves, and it's a huge part of just being able to uh, stay up to date and stay relevant. And you're helping all the other professions protect themselves. Yep, exactly. So I have to know what's going on as well. Yeah. You better. <laughs> you know, one other question that we had Brock was about like frequency of payment. Um, Cause you can, you can, you can focus on like, you can have like monthly or quarterly or annual. Is there yep. a financial benefit to, to like paying annually instead of monthly? Yeah, definitely. So you don't have to pay like the servicing charges um, if you do, uh, or as much if you do monthly, right? So if you do annual, um, if you pay annually for your premiums, typically you can save about three to 5% on your, on your, um, annual premiums, which I always try to educate people on, um, cause you don't have to pay kind of that monthly servicing charge. So if you look at the illustrations, it'll say monthly. And if you month, if you multiply the monthly amount by 12, it's always more than what the annual premium amount is because, um, yeah, it, you, you get a discount for paying uh, annually for sure. So I is would, there, if, if you can do it, I would recommend doing it. But Brock, is there any disadvantage to paying annually? I remember asking my broker, like, should I just pay it annually? He said, well, what if you change your mind later or if you change it, there's something about like, you've already paid up front, you're not going to get your money back. Or um, if you uh, end up having to use a disability insurance, you've already paid ahead. Could you yeah, walk me through might, that? 
he might have been referring to like uh you had already paid monthly so much that paying annually now you're really not going to save that much because it's it's not like it's 20 percent savings right so it's a three to five percent savings so if you paid a couple months that were monthly um he might have been referring to that or or changing the premium sometimes can cause um little mm -hmm. hiccups and sometimes there's clerical errors unfortunately too when people try to change um the premium frequency so he might have been referring to kind of finish out this year paying monthly and then next year we can switch to annually. I see. And just for example, I'm looking at my stuff for Mass Mutual. The annual fee obviously had like no additional charge. The monthly had a 5.7% APR additional yep. charge. And then the semi-annual, which was a little bit counterintuitive to me, was 16% APR um, additional charge. So it was more expensive to do it semi-annually than monthly. And, and monthly was more expensive than annual, obviously, because that had zero charge. Um, yeah. So it was a little weird to think about that and just kind of wonder why. Yeah, that's a good question. Typically, <laughs> to be honest with you, the vast majority of people that we work with pay either monthly or they pay um, annually. But I would imagine that if you pay semi-annually, they're just trying to still get some of those charges in there. I think I think most of the time, the only way that you're really going to get a break is if you pay annually. Got it. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, this has been really, really helpful, Brock. You've been very transparent and uh, explain things in a way that I think everyone will be able to understand. Yeah, um, yeah we really appreciate your time. Um, if people want to reach out to you, what, you know, what would be the best way for them to do so? Yeah, so uh, you can always check out our website. It's uh, bc-brokerage.com. Uh, you can email me, brock at bc-brokerage.com. And uh, you're more than welcome to give me a call as well, 765-730-7146. If you have any questions or you're trying to navigate um, any types of insurances, you just have questions. Like I said, my job is to educate, not just sell anybody on anything and, and always make sure that people understand what's going on. Very nice. All right. Well, thanks again for the time. And uh, Vivian, it was, I really appreciated your questions too. Coming from your own like life experience yeah. in your career, it, it means a lot because like I haven't lived what you have. And I think a lot of people will, uh, will benefit from that. Happy to help. You know, as a first gen doctor in my family navigating this uh, with the guidance of my best friend's dad and a couple of books here and there. It's been really helpful to hear from other people. And I definitely want to share what I've learned so that other people who are like me or who have, you know, different backgrounds, but are still new to this stuff, feel comfortable navigating the waters and not completely being out of their depth. Very nice. Thank All you right. guys. Well, hope, uh, hope you both have a good rest of your day. And Likewise. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Thanks so much.